Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You that You have spoken to us in Your Word, that in it we find truth. And Lord, that You didn't just give us truth that was meant to just stay floating up in the sky, but truth for life. Truth meant to help us live more faithfully today. So Lord, I ask that Your Spirit, He would be here, He would be active, and that as Your Word is preached, we might see truth to live our lives by and to build our lives upon. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, week six of our series on a Christian view of government. And I hope you are realizing now that the Bible has a lot to say about this subject. And I hope that that is taking root in your hearts and your minds, no matter how much you may have been told the opposite for much of your life. And even this series, which will end at uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, is only an overview. We're still just skipping over the surface of what the Bible has to say on this subject. So I want to warn you that any theologian or pastor who tells you the Bible doesn't talk about these things, uh, or that God is indifferent to these things, that person is either totally ignorant, or he or she is trying to sell you something uh, that you shouldn't buy, because it's just not true. Up to this point, we focused largely on the positive side um, of government when it comes to our texts, specifically Romans 13 and, and Genesis 1, and the proper functions of government. But throughout the series, I've maintained a cautious nature, which I'm sure you've, you've noted, and warned why we need limitations uh, upon the government, especially when we looked at the topic of c- civil disobedience. And the question would become, why was I so cautious earlier on? And the answer to that question is because I'm reading the Bible as a whole. As I said at the beginning of this series, we are going to um, week by week kind of build this well-rounded understanding and that you need to understand everything as a whole, not just each message on its own. And I've been trying to do that here. So God, in Romans 13, we see, created government for good, for our good. But God uh, recognizes that we live in a fallen world. In other words, everything God created was good, but humans, that is us as sinners, have a tendency to take good things and to turn them into bad things, to corrupt them. Sex is good, but humanity corrupts it and abuses it. Families are good, yet when families fall apart, they become some of the most destructive things you will ever see. Humanity tends to corrupt God's good gifts. And in the book of Revelation, we get a picture of this other side of the governmental equation. That is how Satan uses it against God and against God's anointed ones, his saints. And so the biblical instruction on government is well-rounded. It's realistic. It's not idealistic. It's realistic to the challenges that you and I face living in this world. And it is here Uh, I want to say a few things. First, if anybody walks away from this message thinking that Pastor Levi is offering his commentary on what happened on Tuesday, I can proudly inform you that this series was planned out months before the election, and this message was done before any poll closed on Tuesday. I have not made any additions or subtractions to this message, and and, uh, so take that for what it's worth. Now, this message series is meant to be applied in life. 
I'm not trying to skirt the issue. I'm just saying, don't put words into my mouth that were not intended. I do want to take some time here, though, to explain just a little bit about the book of Revelation. Because that's where we're going to spend our time here this morning. There are a wide variety of different views on how to understand this very confusing, at, at times, books. Views that are probably, many of those views, represented in this room. That is, I know for a fact that there are very different views sitting watching me uh, preach this book here this morning. And all of those views fit within Orthodox Christianity. But I want to summarize the three major views here, and again, this is a broad summary, and explain to you how this is going to fit with my message this morning. Now, the first major view would be what I would call post-millennialism. This is the idea that Jesus will return after the thousand-year kingdom, after the millennium. And that means this view normally goes hand-in-hand with the idea that most of the events in the book of Revelation have already happened. They're historical. They're past. They've already happened. This was the dominant view uh, of the church from the Reformation on for centuries. Most of your forefathers in the faith held this view. Amillennialism is the second camp. And this camp thinks that the millennial kingdom is now in heaven. The kingdom exists in heaven. That thousand-year reign exists in heaven. It's not really on earth. And they generally view the book of Revelation as describing general realities of the world between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So that first view, all of these things have pretty much already happened uh, in the book of Revelation. Amillennialism, all of these things in the book of Revelation are general descriptions of this period of time, the age of the church. The third camp, which has become probably the most dominant camp in American Christianity, would be pre-millennialism. And this could be divided into two further camps, but we don't need to do that today. But this is the belief that Christ will come to establish his 1,000-year kingdom in Revelation 20. And thus the events in Revelation can be general descriptions of this age, like with all millennialism, or for other premillennialists, that most of those events are still yet to come. They're future. We're looking forward to the future in these events. So, for the context of this message, one major camp says all of this has happened. One major camp says, well, you know, this is a general reality we deal with, and one says that these events are still yet to come. Now, all of those views cannot be correct, or at least not fully correct, and we should want to get this right. Nonetheless, I'm not going any further with those views today. Rather, Revelation 13, where we will spend our time and how I'm going to preach it today, is largely not impacted by whichever one of those three camps you find yourself in this morning. Whether you're post-mill, all-mill, or pre-mill, the points I'm going to draw from this text and apply remain the same. The idea here for today is this, that tyranny is not only evil, but it is ultimately demonic. It's inspired by Satan. Thus, Christians must always stand against tyranny and oppose it. And that opposition can take many different forms. Francis Schaeffer helps us again at this point as he summarizes the work of Rutherford's The Law's King, which we spent time on last week. But tyranny, as Schaeffer and Rutherford point out, is ruling without God's approval or sanction. It is an attempt of someone else to put themselves in the place of God. And such tyranny is always wicked and inspired by Satan. Thus Schaeffer writes, 
Since tyranny is satanic, not to resist it is to resist God. To resist tyranny is to honor God. Let me read that to you again. Since tyranny is satanic, not to resist it is to resist God Himself. To resist tyranny is to honor God. Helping tyranny is satanic. It is to fight against our Lord and Savior. To fight against tyranny is to honor God. That's pretty much the thesis of this message. And this is supported by what we see in Romans 13, 1 through 10. Now, during COVID 19, I was sitting around my dining room table with my boys, and for some reason, we got on the topic. I mean, our kids are homeschooled, so for some reason, we got on the topic of state mottos, seals, and state flags. And we were looking through the different one, and I came across Virginia's state motto, seal, and whatever. And on it, I don't speak Latin, but my kids are learning Latin. Uh, it says, Sic Semper Tyrannis. Right, that's Latin. And it means, thus always to tyrants. Thus always to tyrants. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Well, the picture gives you a clue. There is standing Lady Virtue, standing with her foot upon the chest of a dead tyrant who's bleeding out. That's quite the state seal, if you ask me. <laughs> we came from greater men. We really, we really did, brothers and sisters. I mean, how offensive is that flag today? But we came from, from greater men and women. That is on their state flag, and that's the state flag of Virginia. Virginia. In the coldness of the COVID-19 insanity, that warmed my heart. And that gave us the title of for today's message. To be a Christian leads us to wish for, to work towards, and to overthrow tyrants. For all tyranny is ultimately demonic. So let's dive into the text here this morning. Look at verses 1 and 2 and 4 from chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems, that's crowns, on its heads and horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet was like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Now there's a lot going on in this passage, but we first need to know, or first ask, who's the dragon? Who's the beast? Who are these characters? Who is this, uh, why is he giving authority to the beast, the dragon? Well, the dragon is introduced to us in chapter 12, right before chapter 13. The dragon is Satan in no uncertain terms. And in chapter 12, we get a picture of this, this great dragon who's cast out of heaven, who's cast out of the presence of God, and he's sitting there waiting to devour the birth, or devour Christ at his birth. Literally waiting with his mouth open to kill the Messiah. Now, if you know your history in your Bible, how did the dragon try to do this? Well, he tried to do this with King Herod. He tried to do this with the government. After failing, the dragon turns to attack the people of the Messiah, the Christians, the saints. And in his hatred for them, he summons from the sea a beast to help kill and persecute Christians. Let the reader understand. 
So who's the beast? Well, if we go back to those major camps, there's different answers to that question. Who is this first beast? Some think it is the government of Rome. So if you're thinking everything happened in the past, you think that this was, this was Rome. Some think that it is an antichrist who is to come, who's the head of a one-world government. All right, that's the premillennial view, generally speaking. And some think that it's just a divinized secular government that describes this age in general. All right, whatever you think the beast is, whoever you think the beast is, it's clearly built off of the four beasts from Daniel chapter 7, which are represented as four wicked kingdoms of this world who are then destroyed by the Messiah. They're overthrown by him. But any way you skin this cat, what's in view here is a wicked government in some form. Whenever you think it's going to happen, the beast is some wicked, satanically inspired form of government. And we see this truth, that the dragon, or Satan, opposes Christians all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he uses the government to do so. Whether it be Pharaoh in Egypt, Caesar in Rome, after the church, or sorry, after the New Testament, the marriage of the Pope with the governments of Europe who burned confessing believers at the stake. Whether it be Soviet Russia who locked Christians up and killed them, communist China, which you have to get a license to have a church in today. ISIS, which will behead Christians. Remote tribes, which kill missionaries that show up again and again. This is what the dragon does. He opposes God's people. Next, we also have to consider this text in light of Romans 13. Romans 13 tells us quite plainly that the government is God's servant. But here, in Revelation 13, the government is Satan's serpent or servant. Which is true. Which one do we fundamentally agree or interact with the government through? If anyone wants to help me out here, that'd be great. Clearly, what we're seeing here is if you read your Bible as a whole, you need discernment when you're evaluating any government. We could be talking about a more Romans 13 government. We could be talking about a more Revelation 13 government. In fact, we can speak of portions of governments, whether they be our own or others throughout world history, as being good, and other portions of it as being evil and demonic. But if your biblical analysis of government only begins and ends with Romans 13, you're missing a huge portion of the Bible's teaching on the subject. Fourth, we see that the worship of the state is actually the worship of the dragon. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we read that any false worship is ultimately demonic. Now let me pause here because I'm using that word demonic a lot What I don't mean by demonic is that people are Hollywood-style convulsing, eyes are changing, and being possessed by a demon. Demons can influence things without actually inhabiting people. We see that throughout Scripture. But look at verse 4 again of Revelation 13. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? So the dragon empowers the beast. The beast worships, the, or the people worship the beast, which is actually worshiping the dragon, who is Satan. This worship is so great that they say, who can actually fight against this beast? Who is strong enough to do anything to stop 
what this beast is doing. Now, if you've read the book of Revelation at all, you know what the answer to the question is. They're picking a fight, and it's a fight they're going to lose. But nonetheless, we have to note that if you are worshiping the state, if you turn the state into your savior, what you're actually doing is worshiping the dragon. There is also in Revelation 13 a second beast, often tied to the religious sphere, often called the false prophet. And his job, the second beast, is to get everyone to worship the first beast. It's thriving off of false worship. Turning the state into God, whether in name or practice, is devil worship. It is to ally yourself with Satan over and against God and his people. And I have to say this, brothers and sisters, that is no small thing. Statism, growing the state to be a law unto itself, to be your savior, to be the thing you look to all the time to be saved, is a form of devil worship. And I'm not even stretching the text at all. I'm like, I'm standing firmly on what is going on here. The fact that more pastors miss this is disturbing. To be fair, there are people who worship the state and who worship politicians who come from every political persuasion. But you Christians must never do that. Ever. Any view of government that makes the government its own authority is a form of of devil worship, whether you actually are worshiping Satan or not, doesn't matter. Whether you actually know that you are or not. It is for this reason that Rutherford and Schaefer are correct. To support tyranny, to support a limitless state, to support overly big government is to oppose God. For the biblical view of government is that it is a servant and not your savior. Our second main point here, we see in verse 7. Look at verse 7 again. And also it, that is the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. That second half of verse 7 should sound very familiar to you. Every tribe, nation, and tongue. Every tribe, nation, and tongue. Revelation chapter 7, there's a chorus of people from all around the world worshiping the Lamb. Well, Satan's got his counterfeit. The authority given from the dragon and allowed by God carries with it for the dragon's desire to make war upon the saints. Again, in Revelation 12, the dragon is cast out of heaven. He's angry, it says. He knows his time is short. And in his wrath, he cannot reach God. So he turns his wrath upon that which he can reach, which are the people. Of God. And to help in that fight, he summons a beast out of the sea, which is some form of tyrannical government. The beast's tyrannical authority is empowered by Satan to oppose, to persecute, and to kill the saints of Jesus Christ. And so, we see this theme again and again in Scripture Satan uses the government, the state, to oppose God's people. Pharaoh turned on Joseph and his descendants. He oppressed them and he refused to grant them freedom. Nebuchadnezzar not only took over Israel, but he oppressed the exiles and he demanded that they worship him and him alone. Darius forbid prayer to God and instead said, pray to me. Haman 
tries to use the government of Persia to kill all the Jews, but God provides deliverance through Esther. Herod tries to kill Jesus at his birth. Another Herod kills John the Baptist. Jesus is arrested by governing officials of Israel and then is condemned at a sham trial by a Roman governing official and put to death. The soldiers of Rome guarded the sealed tomb of Christ, vainly trying to keep him in the tomb. Jewish rulers opposed the apostles, and a fair number of Roman officials did as well. And the early church was fed to the lions for not worshiping Caesar. The Soviets imprisoned and killed Christians. This last century, it is estimated, has been the deadliest century in world history for Christian martyrs. We like to look back at the first century and say, oh, wasn't that a bad time for Christians? No, more Christians have been killed for being Christians in the last century than any time before. Whether it come from communism or Islam or something else. All that to say that this is no minor theme in Scripture. And brothers and sisters, this is one of Satan's most common tactics. He uses the state to oppress the saints. That's one of the reasons why Revelation 13 is in the Bible. We must recognize it, that this is given to us to instruct us. Here is a call for the endurance in the faith of the saints. The Bible warns us of this reality so that we might not lose faith and that we might endure. We are called to oppose this beast through the faithfulness of our testimony and through the blood of the Lamb. And we are called to oppose tyranny in its many forms and at many levels. Martyrdom being the worst that can happen to you. But there are lesser ways that the state seeks to oppress God's people. Forced worship, silencing speech, social canceling or removal, requiring licenses to preach. We've seen it all. But death is just, well, it's the worst that he can do. But Christ has overcome death. This again leads me back to the pandemic. There were, in Canada, our brothers to the north, several pastors who were arrested by the state. Let me rephrase that. There were several pastors who were arrested by the beast for gathering to worship God. The beast threw several pastors in jail. Yes, this means I'm looking directly at Justin Trudeau. The beast, one of them. Pastor Tim Stevens, Arthur Pawlowski, James Coates. This was tyranny. It was inspired by the dragon in opposition to the people of God. And yet, and yet, and yet there were Christian leaders and pastors who were at that time arguing in favor of the beast and against the saints. I don't say this to be divisive. I say this because it breaks my heart. Thankfully, since that time in Canada, the courts have reversed just about every one of those penalties. So let me, let's get this straight here. Pastors were doing what they were supposed to be doing. Satan provokes the beast to do what he wants him to do. The beast arrests him. The, the pastors side with the beast over the saints. And eventually, the courts come in and say, no, actually, the pastors are right. And the pastors who are against those pastors have not admitted that they were wrong. Crickets. One such leader heads our denomination. He expressed to me 
that he was embarrassed by the actions of the pastors, but not the actions of the government. I struggle to find the words to describe that kind of betrayal. I thought about it for a while as I typed this out. I couldn't come up with words that I could say in church. Sure, it can come from ignorance. Sure, such actions can come from cowardice, which is probably most likely. But it still remains a devastating betrayal. To promote tyranny is to oppose God. To side with the beast and the dragon over your brothers and sisters in Christ, bought by the same blood as you, is absolutely despicable. And yes, I'm upset about it. We oppose tyranny because it finds its origin in the evil one. And we serve the one who is three times holy, who is righteous, who is the light, and who is the king of kings. Another point we have to see here that is found throughout this text is that as society becomes more wicked, as people do not control their own lusts and desires, as sin flourishes in a people, tyranny is invited in. The two, wickedness in the people and tyranny, they go hand in hand. You can't miss this because, well again, people who came before us, they understood this. Remember again the state logo of Virginia. It is Lady Virtue standing in triumph over the tyrant. Virtue is needed to overthrow tyrants. If we can't govern ourselves, tyrants will. If you can't govern yourself, tyrants will. John Adams said this, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. His brother, Samuel Adams, another founding father, said this, He says, it is in the interest of tyrants to reduce the people to ignorance and vice. For tyrants cannot live in any country where virtue and knowledge prevail. Tyrants need an ignorant people, and they need a people who are in love with their own sins. And we have walked right into that trap. Especially guided so faithfully by our so-called education system. It's not just Christians who understood this. Tacitus, an ancient Roman historian, said this, The more corrupt the state, the more numerous the laws. I don't know if you've ever tried reading our laws, but we got a lot of laws. And we see this reality in the book of Revelation. The beast of Revelation 13 is actually introduced to us in Revelation chapter 11 in the context of the death of the two witnesses. We see this beast. And we read in chapter 11, of how wicked the people are. The people are described as Sodom in Egypt. Those aren't good cities, in case you're wondering. If you know your Bibles, those two cities are often representations of sexual sin and oppression. So the people are Sodom in Egypt. And the people in Revelation 11 make merry and exchange presents because the two witnesses have been killed. They're celebrating the death of the righteous. This theme continues throughout the book of Revelation. The dragon and the kings of the earth cooperate with the great harlot. In case you're wondering, that's not lady virtue. That's not a good thing. Wickedness and tyranny go hand in hand. And all of this is tied to that ancient serpent, the great dragon. Where people cannot control themselves, they inevitably invite in tyranny. This is because 
The more you live a life of sin, the more your life is already under the rule of the source of all tyranny, who is Satan. The more you sin, the more you're already under his government. I would be remiss, though, if I didn't trace this conflict between Christ and the dragon and the beast to the end of the book of Revelation. What is going on in the book of Revelation? What is Christ's disposition to the devilish tyrants? This is his disposition. Anger, wrath, judgment, and victory. Victory. Christ is the dragon slayer. Christ hates tyrants. Christ will defeat them. Consider the end of the tyrants of this earth. Consider the end of the beast. Consider the end of the dragon. I'm going to read to you Revelation 19, 11 and following. It's a bit long, but I think it's worth your consideration this morning. The word of the Lord reads, When I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. In case you're wondering, that's Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name which he is called, the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet in who its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That is the end of all tyrants. Christ comes to make war dressed in a robe that is dripping with blood. The beast and the false prophet are thrown into the fire. God invites the birds of the air to come and feast on the carcasses of his enemies. Out of Christ's mouth comes a sword, and with it he strikes down the kings of the earth, including the beast and the dragon. The tyrants under the sway of the beast and the dragon are slain by, as Luther would put it, one little word will slay them. And that word is above all earthly powers. That word is Christ. And that word slays them with a sword that's coming out of his mouth. In case you're wondering, Jesus doesn't have a literal sword that comes out of his mouth. It's his words. The words of the word will slay the dragon. 
And he has titles on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he rides into divine battle, into victory. And the tyrants of the earth will be slain. Sic semper tyrannis. Thus to all tyrants. Christ will tread them in the winepress of God Almighty's wrath. That is the inescapable future for all tyrants. That is the end to which we are all heading. Therefore, to oppose tyrants in faith is to align yourself with the conquering Christ. God hates all tyrants. And let me be clear on that. All forms of tyranny are attempts to replace Christ, who is the King of Kings, with someone lesser. And that is true whether you fancy yourself to be a tyrant in the state, the home, the workplace, or anywhere else. You can try to make your own kingdom where you set the rules. That's just an attempt to try to play God. Don't be a tyrant at any level of life. Christ will crush you. And so this reality has three basic applications. First is this. Christians are to be opposed to tyranny because they are aligned with Christ. Politically, the biblical philosophy of government is this. It is to be limited with checks and balances because checks and balances frustrate the dragon in his attempt to pervert government. We know that humans are sinners and therefore we all need accountability. Do not turn the state or any politician into a savior. It is a servant. And let me make this point clear. We do not oppose tyranny because we are idolizing the kingdoms of dirt that populate this world. So that's often what we get accused of. But because we are working towards the coming kingdom that will never fade and never end. We oppose tyranny because we vehemently oppose idolizing the kingdoms of this world. That's what tyrants do. They try to set up their own kingdom in opposition to Christ. We say, we don't like tyranny because tyranny comes from Satan and we serve his rival. It is precisely because our allegiance is ultimately to that eternal kingdom that we would never idolize the state and we oppose any who would try to do so. Second, Christians can endure tyranny and oppose it with confidence because Christ wins. This is a call to overcome. Thus to all tyrants will come for Christ is the conquering king. The Lord in heaven laughs in derision at the plots of the kings of men because he knows their end is soon. Their doom is sure. And Christians are called to a resolute faithfulness for we know the outcome. When you look at Revelation 19 and you see Christ coming down in victory, it is not a call for you to sit there and go, well, I can't wait for that to happen. It's a call for you to live faithfully and take ground until he does. Because Christ will win. Finally, this is a call to repentance. All tyrants will die. But they may die with Christ instead of from his sword. And that's the same for all of us. Death will come for you all. And God's wrath will either fall upon your sins in Christ or upon your own head. Either will do. And so to the rulers of the earth, you have been warned. Turn and repent. Renounce the dragon and kiss the sun. The sun will provide mercy if you repent. If not, he will judge you. 
If you will not bend the knee now, Christ will smite you with a sword from his mouth, and the last thing you will hear is the rest of us cheering. There goes the beast. There goes the dragon. Finally. And Christ's kingdom will be forever. Repent and live. Brothers and sisters, that is the message for you and for me. Repent and live. Declare that Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Bend the knee and live or His judgment will fall upon you. Just like the rulers of the earth, you and I face a choice. Either Christ will have your sins or you will have them. Choose wisely. For Christ is coming on a white horse. He is coming with a sword. And He is coming dripping with blood. Repent and live. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in your word you have given us a glimpse of that final victory. Hasten the day. Bring the day when your kingdom will finally be fully here, where it will remain forever. But until that day comes, Lord, may you limit the influence of the dragon upon the governments of this world. May you limit his evil and may you protect your saints. Lord, give us the kind of faith depicted throughout the book of Revelation that we would overcome by the faithfulness of our testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.